we are fully transparent the way we do things. And a key part about that is that we publish those ratings. And we are the only one in the market that does that. And we cover over 50% of the voluntary carbon market with our ratings. And they're all on the website. You can go and have a look at them now. Welcome to The Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-conscious individuals looking to learn the ideas, lessons, and philosophy driving today's climate leaders. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Ted Christie Miller, head of carbon removal at B0 Carbon, about the role of global carbon ratings and how they facilitate greater trust and transparency in carbon markets. As part of the flow of capital and investments such as stocks and bonds, investment vehicles are rated by trusted services to help investors make informed decisions. This creates more opportunities for innovators and entrepreneurs by encouraging more capital flowing across global financial markets. The same must happen to carbon markets to build a net zero future, and that's exactly what TED and B0 are doing. To close any remaining gap between emission reductions and a net zero future, we need to build a massive carbon market. According to the IPCC, we need to be sequestering as much as 10 billion tons of CO2 across the globe by 2050 to reach net zero. And the key ingredient to expand these voluntary and regulatory carbon markets from millions to billions of tons is trust. To close any remaining gap between emission reductions and a net zero future, we need to build a massive carbon market. According to the IPCC, we need to be sequestering as much as 10 billion tons of CO2 across the globe by 2050 to reach net zero. And the key ingredient to expand these voluntary and regulatory carbon markets from millions to billions of tons is trust. Companies, governments, and even individuals need to trust that their carbon credit, offset, or removal purchases are accomplishing the thing they claim to do, namely, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Companies, governments, and even individuals need to trust that their carbon credit, offset, or removal purchases are accomplishing the thing they claim to do, namely, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Our guest today, Ted Christie Miller, is an expert in carbon removal and carbon markets. He is currently the head of carbon removal at B0 Carbon, where he leads research, ratings, and partnership teams for engineering carbon removal for the B0 Carbon Markets platform. The B0 Markets platform grades carbon offset and removal projects on their likeliness to reduce emissions. This streamlines companies and governments' decisions as they look to reduce their carbon output outside their operations. Ted is also a policy fellow at the Think Tank Onward, where he leads the Getting to Zero Policy Program, which focuses on helping the UK government achieve net zero emissions. He regularly writes in the UK on topics of climate and carbon markets at publications like The Times, The Telegraph, City AM, Yorkshire Post, Reaction, and Business Green. He also has spoken on Times Radio, LBC, and Talk Radio. As you may infer from his accent, Ted is based in London, and during the episode, he also provides a non-United States lens on the role of policy in reducing emissions through public sector action. We cover his climate origin story and recommended reading material for building knowledge on carbon removal and carbon markets during the episode. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. Yeah, it's going to be a pleasure. Congratulations on your, I don't know, actually, let me rephrase that. I want to say congratulations, but um, I am holding you up from a, uh, a three-day weekend, uh, if, that's, if I'm correct. So it's Friday afternoon for you. Yeah, nearly there. So we're, um, we've got Monday off, but, uh, but today was a working day. But uh, as, as we discussed in the, um, the bit before, we had our office party last night. So um, it hasn't been the... the <laughs> it hasn't it's been a slower day than usual let's say 
Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, we're we're you're in good spirits, quite uh, quite literally. Uh, I too um, and celebrating last night, so uh, this should be fun. Um, I've got coffee to help stimulate me. I don't know what your Friday afternoon uh, drink of choices or or other um, inebriation method. Not that you have to have one. Got to be got to be a cup of tea. I'm in England, don't I? <laughs> okay, of course, of course, with milk. Of course. Is you know this is it's not where I thought we would go, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Is there um, so I think for Americans, um, although not all Americans, I don't want to do sweeping generalization. Most don't put milk in their tea. However, some do. But I'm wondering if the alternative milk fad for like oat milk or soy milk or cashew milk within coffee. So whenever you go to the coffee shop in the U.S., it's like an extra dollar, extra seventy five cents to use oat milk. Has that infiltrated the tea as well? Do people do that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the type of tea we drink is probably different to what people have in the US as well. Like we're having like Yorkshire breakfast tea, which is like quite strong. Uh, so it's quite different. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I personally don't. I'm not a fan of putting uh, alternative milks into teas. But um, I think it's also tea you tend to have at home. Whereas if you're sort of going for a coffee, it's more likely you'll go out and have oats and whatever. But um, yeah, I think it's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> next time i come to england um i'll have to find out cool so let's get into it um you know as we've talked about and as listeners are hopefully familiar with we're going to cover four parts we're going to cover your story we're going to cover the first principles of your work specifically around carbon removal and carbon ratings as well as how um b0 carbon is moving the world closer to net zero emissions so starting off with the you personally, you do uh, a number of different forms of media, including this podcast, but you you also write, you also speak on TV. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about either if you have a preference for a, a form of media or what your prep is. So when you're writing an article, how like what is your process for an article or for you're going and speaking on a segment? How do you prepare for it? Or in this case of a podcast, how do you get yourself ready uh, to be your best? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think in, in terms of the form of media I like to like go through I think writing is probably what, what I like the most. I find radio is, is, it can be really good and it has great, great reach. But the di- issue you have with it is you've got, you know, your, your three, four minutes to, to make your point. Um, and inevitably you, you don't quite get it out in the way you, you want to. So I think there's limitations with that uh, as well. And I think, you know, um, I've d- done a couple of podcasts in the past, but not, not that many. But I think that's sort a of longer form way of a discussion allows you to really get into some of the issues uh, in, in good detail so um yeah thanks for me on anyway but uh, yeah in in terms of writing i think it's it's a it's a tricky one because i i sort of write partially uh, with I'm, I'm a fellow at a think tank alongside my my work uh, at b0 uh, and so i sometimes will write in that capacity and then about sort of british politics um uh, and sometimes i'll be writing about about you know, carbon removal, about carbon ratings. Um, so it, it slightly depends. I think on the former, it, it will kind of be random ideas that I'll just be walking around and suddenly I'm like, oh, that'd be really interesting to, to look at. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of formulate. And then I tend to basically write three long bullet points that is essentially like, a, you know, 200 words of what I want the argument to say. And then I'll, I'll you know, p- pitch it to the comment editor, really, and see see what they think and if they've got any thoughts on it. So that's the, probably, yeah, that tends to be when I'm coming up with sort of, uh, wacky <laughs> ideas to discuss British politics. But uh, in terms of uh, the, the carbon-related work, it sometimes is like that, but it's more more often, you know, I've done a, done a, a large piece of research, and so it's very much using that as the, as the core for it. And then 
doing a op-ed to help with the release of it um, or, or just to, to do some discussion points around some recommendations. So, um, yeah, it's a, it sort of uh, mixes a bit. It's also interesting to think about how you, it sounds like you synthesize that work. So presumably you have like this, you have this little idea, it turns into um, a full form article and written, and then you have to synthesize that down in some other form of media. Twitter is a great example, right? Where you have to take this idea now that you've flushed out over the course of many pages, many words, and then share it um, within Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, especially when you've got, when you publish a big report, it's maybe like 40 pages, for instance, um, and then you condense that into an op-ed, and then you then condense that down into a Twitter thread, uh, and 95% of people will probably just read the Twitter thread. <laughs> um, so uh, it's yeah, completely right. But I think it's it's also, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a skill you've got to hone over time, I think, is being able to really condense the points you want to get across, because um, it's very important, especially, I think, when you're doing policy pieces, which I, you know, I used to do as a full-time job, um, you know, you really want to be able to get those those the headline points across and those headline recommendations because you know if you're if you're targeting policymakers, for instance, you know they have <laughs> very short on time and they will probably just glance it and see it and and so you need to need to be able to get it off in, in a yeah small amount of content. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the IPCC report is a good example. I think the summary for politicians is 40 pages, or the most recent one was 40 pages. And it's ironic because there's no way any of the politicians read the summary report. Like, their staffer <laughs> read it and then said, give me, like, the 140 characters or fewer. Um, so as you think about, there's a number of ways that we can go. Again, I'd love to tell a little bit of your origin story here. Um, and part of that is thinking for you, the first time you came across carbon removal, carbon credits. Um, and in that story, I'd also love to hear about the resources that you used to build your knowledge about that, right? So everyone starts from somewhere, both of us start from zero in terms of knowledge in this space. And you presumably have built that up over time and now you're an expert in it. And so thinking about a little bit, like when did that when did that light come on for you about this is a space that I wanna be in? And now how what resources have you used to grow your personal expertise in that in that field, specifically around carbon removal, voluntary carbon markets? It's it's a good question. I think I haven't really thought about it in in much detail really before before now. But I suppose going back to the beginning of, of getting into climate more broadly, um, you know, after after university, I I went and worked in energy policy, and then went and went and worked uh, in a think tank called Onward in, in Westminster in, in the UK, um, and I did a number of reports over over a few years looking at uh, energy and climate, and so I think. I don't know, I, the way I look at it now is I think I probably, you know, I always grew up sort of in the outdoors, grew up in the countryside, you know, I've always had an appreciation for nature and the climate. And I found it always really fascinating as a, as a you know, especially from in a policy, policy sense. And then when we had the Net Zero Act signed into law in 2019, I was in this position sort of leading the energy and environment research at a think tank. And so it was just a really interesting time. And for me, it was, as much of how much I really wanted to help in the fight against the biggest challenge that our humanity has ever faced. Um, but it was also in a pure sort of policy challenge, like that we want to get to net zero emissions in what at the time it was 30, 31 years. I mean, that is just such a vast challenge. And in public policy terms, it's sort of unparalleled in its ambition. So I think that was really fascinating to me as like, what can the, the levers of the state be used to try and shift this and completely transform the way we live and the way our economy functions. So I think, yeah, that was sort of originally how I got interested in it. And um, then when I was at, we ended up launching a cross-party commission on net zero 
uh, while at Onward, which was with two former secretaries of state for, for climate, um, Dame Caroline Spellman and, and Caroline Flint. And in there, we we published sort of a number of reports over the space of the year. Uh, and two of them were on industrial decarbonisation and on um, future tech innovation. And so through that, you know, the, the carbon markets and um, and carbon removal and CCS were sort of key parts of some of the research we're doing. And we did mapping of jobs and mapping of growth prospects for those industries. So I think I got really interested in it. And uh, I remember meeting Steve Oldham once um, a couple few years ago, who, who was the CEO of Carbon Engineering at the time. And he really was the one, I think, that, that sort of, it, when it sort of clicked into place, and I was like, "This is a really exciting area that I want to I want to get involved with." Um, and so that was that was sort of from the policy angle, sort of alongside that work. When 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 the pandemic hit and we um, went on furlough in in 2020, I ended up um, sort of founding a, a carbon offsetting software company um, with with my brother in law because we were sort of locked down at home and thinking what to do. Um, and we ended up basically it was, a, it was a sort of widget that you that you put onto websites and. Um, you can offset your emissions. We sort of got it onto eighty or so websites, but um, the the uh, the economics of it turns out not to be too good. So anyway, that I was sort of interested in it through the carbon offsetting angle there, and then you know the the research piece, and then I I you know came met met Seb, who's the co-founder of B Zero, and then that's sort of how I ended up going in there. But I think in, I've sort of rambled on in that way, but it actually I think there's sort of two angles. So it's a, there's sort of policy and and political angle, but then also through the offsetting in, in the sort of tech world that I was working in. Which are, I, I don't think that was rambling at all, although um, in my opinion <laughs> matters here. Um, but we'll explore both, both the policy side, um, which I think we'll touch on now, and then we'll talk about the technology and be zero carbon. We'll spend a bit of time on that later on in the show. Exploring the policy side, one of the pieces that's interesting, um, for those who don't know or can't hear, you are um, in England uh, and part of the broader UK. And um, 2019, if I am correct, was a, the Conservative Party was in power at that time. And they are still pushing through uh, an agenda that is focused on net zero, or in fact, committing, uh, legally binding, committing to, uh, to that, to achieve that in 31 years. And so part of the lens, as you describe it, is this idea around jobs and industrialization and how, like, from an economy standpoint. And um, I don't know if it would have been any different if it was if the commitment to net zero was from more of the, the, the liberal side of the house. But I am curious if you can share, um, because about what that what the environment was like from the from the government and how that top down lens of a conservative movement is still driving a net zero commitment because it's it aligns with the party values because here in the US I think the the important part is that we, it's, it's obviously not the same case. So the Inflation Reduction Act passed on party lines, uh, barely passed, barely happened, right? So clearly there's still a dichotomy between the liberal and conservative movements around net zero here, uh, but that's not the case in the UK. And it's, uh, you know, to me, it's intellectually fascinating and something worth exploring. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think that there's, it's worth noting that there's, it's a very different environment um, in the UK than it is in, in the US. This is basically a consensus on climate. And the question is not, if we do it, it's it's how we how we get there really, which I think is an amazing progression because you know in 2010 around then you still had um, you know climate deniers it, it, sort of in the in the, in the press and and in in politics as well, but that has well and truly been been stamped out, which I think is great. Um, and then just going back to 2019 when that was uh, signed into law, so it was in the it was in the last days of Theresa May's um, administration, so uh, this was just before Boris Johnson came into power. Uh, and so it was quite an interesting 
moment because she, she, you know, Theresa has been really a champion of net zero since then. But actually, when in power, it well, didn't seem it didn't seem to any people like it was one of her like key priorities. She disbanded the Department of Energy, Energy and Climate Change, and um, there was yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't a given really. And so I think that that was quite an an amazing moment for for the UK and for the climate campaigners. Um, but I think the backdrop to that really is that actually the sort of embedded within British conservatism, I think, is actually a, a real appreciation for place and nature. Um, and so Roger Scruton is a, a sort of a hero of many, many conservative thinkers. And he was actually, he's always had a had a very strong emphasis on how we need to, it's, a, it's like, a bit, his, his idea was that it was an innately conservative thing to, you know, conserve this environment for the next generation. Uh, and so I think, that's sort of one side of it as well. So it's quite, it's quite, it's, I think it's probably quite different to the Republicans in in the US. Um, but yeah, as I said, it was it was a it was a really sort of fascinating moment to be in the thick of it. And then from then, we had after after the Theresa May left office, we then had Boris Johnson, who I think sort of steered partially by his his uh, fiance at the time and now wife um, Carrie Simmons, who has a sort of a, you know is a lifelong climate campaigner and nature campaigner he then really took it into his stride and had it as his key priority with another project called leveling up um and so there was just a, a lot of emphasis behind it at the time uh, and actually a lot of the the center-right think tanks at the time were starting to really pivot towards this and saw it as a really amazing moment to potentially create economic growth and to level up communities across the uk uh, and I think there's, you know, that's still very much is the case. There's, there's a pretty wide consensus uh, in the party. There's a, there's a organisation called the Conservative Environment Network, which has been incredibly influential, um, and they have sort of grown a lot in the last four years. And they've, I think, the majority of Conservative MPs are a part of it. And so I think it's, it's been, it's been quite, it's quite a journey over the last decade when you look where we were and where we are now, and. Uh, I think it's you know it's it's great for for all of us that that want to want to tackle climate change and want to want to get to that net zero by 2050. Uh, but in terms of how your question around sort of how how it may have differed if the Labour in power is is an interesting one because I think instinctively there's obviously the Labour Party are more in favour of using the power of the state to to affect this change um, and uh, you know are, are sort of potentially less worried about. Um, steering people's behaviour. I think you know, they're, they're more to do with equality than liberty, whereas the Conservative Party are, are often quite quite worried about preserving liberty. So I think the way it's been approached has been fairly pragmatic and a lot of, there has been quite a lot of, of sort of quite muscular state departments uh, get, getting involved with it. So potentially that would have been to, to a larger extent. And I think you probably would have seen with the Labour Party a stronger line on uh, national retrofit of housing. I imagine they probably would have done a, a big state-run scheme to retrofit housing. Um, I think they probably would have uh, would have focused more on, on sort of, yeah, state-run investment, potentially through, through the infrastructure bank. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's it's an interesting point. And I'm 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 unsure exactly. I mean, Labour are keeping their cards quite close to their chest at the moment, um, which is sort of understandable um, as we run up to an election. So I think it will it'll be interesting to see how it shifts. I think that inevitably there'd have been more capital put towards it, which is just the nature of nature of things. Um, but 
I actually don't think it would have been drastically different uh, to, to the current approach. It is interesting. The left-leaning states in the U.S. Uh, have specifically made legal um, dictates around housing retrofits. So Washington State, uh, where I'm based, you're you're no longer going to be allowed to put natural gas. New York has uh, local law 97, where you're never not going to be allowed to put natural gas into buildings, into future new buildings. So it is interesting. That's absolutely a lever that um, people can pull as a, a forcing function, uh, although maybe not preserving liberty in parallel with it. As you think about the levers of public-driven action versus private-driven action. Um, you are obviously very involved in the political scene and very familiar with it in the UK, but um, maybe telling us a little bit about how you view those levers and what they should be working on in terms of affecting change, and and if the scene uh, or the atmosphere is quite different in Europe versus the US more generally. it could that, that could just be more like naturally how things go. Like The American economy is very privately driven. And I, and I guess I'm curious to hear from you, like if, if do you see the same amount of private action in the UK as you do in the US? Like, or, or is it less so because there is that much more public action? Yeah, I think it's an interesting, interesting question. So in terms of the first point around how we view the levers in the public and the private spheres, you know, the voluntary carbon market, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit, but is a very good example of how you can harness private capital through through private markets, well, through private sector. Um, to to really help this challenge, but I think the nature of this task that we have to get to net, to net zero emissions in now what twenty eight years um, is so vast and it's got to do such a transition that you know free run markets just will not be able to do that on their own and that's, and I think there's a there's an awareness of that in Europe and the UK and actually to an extent in the US as well um, and so what you what they need to do is to create the right regulation and create the right funding, potentially at early stage innovation funding, um, and the right subsidy mechanisms like we've done with renewables in the UK to, to help that. And I think as you as you mentioned, there's a there's a, a bit less um I don't know, there's 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 a more people are more in favor of uh using using the state to, to do some of these things in the UK. I think a good example of that is uh, you know the, the green infrastructure bank that we had that was very influential in, in sp- spinning out the, the story of offshore wind, which has been a great success, uh, and the contracts for different me- mechanism alongside that as well. Um, which I, I'd be interested to your view of whether you think you know something like that would be possible in the US. Um, but I think I think you're right that there is there is a bit more uh, instinctive hostility to that type of action in the US, but. What I will say is, under this administration, I think we've we've seen more ambition on some of these things than anywhere else in the world. Really, I, I think you know the Inflation Reduction Act, in particular, was an enormous moment for, for global climate policy. Really, um, which I think has been, yeah, I mean that that's a it's an amazing package, especially for you know, the carbon management sector um, to, to to really kick kickstart. Um, but the UK, I think the the way in which leaves have been done in the past wouldn't have been possible in the US. Let's transition into your expertise in carbon removal. I want to get there by talking first about the first principles of carbon markets. And you referenced there's there's you know there's a quick fork in the road, which is um, like regulatory carbon markets versus voluntary carbon markets. Uh, and I'm, one of the things I think will be great for listeners is if you can just 
paint the mental map uh, of who the players are in the space today and, and let's whittle ourselves down until we get to like voluntary carbon markets. And then from there, we can talk about the other fork, which is really kind of um, avoidance versus removal or technology versus nature. And there's a few different aspects. But from your end, I'll, I'll, I'll just repeat the question. So from, from your lens, as you think about who are the different people or organizations, either government or private actors who make up the carbon market? Yeah, so I think that, that it's worth just identifying the distinct difference between regulatory markets and, and voluntary markets. So, and they have very different actors as well. Um, but I mean, in, in short, you know, they're, they're for private companies. Um, and depending on the regulatory market, for instance, we've got the biggest in the world is the EU ETS. It's worth roughly $750 billion, I think. Um, the UK ETS is, is sort of second to that, it's worth about $80 billion. Um, And then you've got some sort of small, smaller markets. You've got one in California, for instance. Um, and the, the key actors really are the private companies, but they are administrated and, and regulated by, by governments, uh, essentially. So um, that, is, that is the makeup of the regulated space. Uh, within the the voluntary market, uh, we've got you know there's by the nature of it being a unregulated uh, market, you've got a number of different private actors. Uh, worth doing a bit of history about the voluntary market as well. So what we saw running up to sort of 2010 after the Kyoto Protocol uh, and then onwards, um, and then when we got to about 2010, there was. Uh, a, basically a big rise in, in the voluntary carbon market and there was a real moment happening and everyone thought look this is this this is going to be it uh, it's going to keep on rising and then it completely flopped in sort of 2012 2013 uh, and then we saw uh, we sort of, sort of settled back down and then around the time of actually the UK uh, I mean sort of post Paris but around the time the UK signed and net zero into law that's when we really saw it start to kick off again um and now the state of the market is well i suppose there's sort of three key elements to it so you've got the registries um which are uh, vera gold standard uh, you've got a number of different different registries which i sort of see them as like the auditors they're like the the fca and uh, of that ecosystem um, and then you've got, uh, I mean, the intermediaries, you could say, there's people like Patch, uh, people like ACX, the sort of exchanges and, and the marketplaces. Um, and then you've got the ratings agencies, which of which sort of B, B0 Carbon are. I mean, you, you could you could identify a number of different smaller actors within the within the, the space, but that's sort of the way in which I, I see it. Um, and they're the sort of key, the key functions within it. I, as I was thinking about this episode, I was trying to make the parallel to um, stock exchanges, which I think are a little more palatable for for people. And um, uh, curious to hear your view, um, but using the U.S. as an example, uh, most of the listeners are, are based in the U.S., but for, feel free to use the U.K. as well. We have the SEC, which is like the regulator, and then we have a number of exchanges. So you can list on the New York Stock Exchange um, or the NASDAQ, right? And these are different opportunities for a company to list. Um to me, I, I guess in this example, is it fair to say that Vera and Gold Standard and um, Climate Action Reserve, although maybe I'm getting that one wrong, I'm trying to remember who the third is. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's one, yeah. right. Are um, are are they the equivalent of the the exchange where you would list on, and then the SEC is the um, regulatory body to say, hey, here are the rules of which you have to do that, and then the exchanges fall in so um or vera gold standard because vera gold standard and climate action reserve presumably have different criteria for their credits 
Yeah, I think that's it's a, it's a fairly good analogy. I think the difference would be that Vera and Gold Standard, etc., have they they manage the they sort of create the credits really. So like they, they manage the auditing process and they they sort of it, it, you you pay them to to create that credit essentially, um, and that that process is sort of overseen by them. So it's both both the stock exchange and the auditor, I suppose. But then they're all they're all, they also have third-party auditors within them so I don't know, it's not it's not a direct parallel but um, I think it's not about not a bad one one of the things I think that b0 um, b0 carbon do you prefer b0 or b0 carbon uh, I don't really mind. I think B0 is probably easier. Yeah, cool. so we'll talk about B0 or, or just rating agencies more generally do is help move this, what I would say, you know, 90% of the individuals think today of a binary of a carbon credit of good or bad, right? Um, and But there's there's a nuance to it. And so uh, what your work does or part of your work does is help identify that nuance um, via ratings or risks, um, specifically risk around how likely is that credit that Vera or Gold Standard has created um, to truly remove a ton of carbon. And so uh, I'd love to just explore that with you to a little bit about what is that methodology like? How did that idea come to be? And why is it that everyone today, and not everyone, but the majority of people, myself included, think about it as a binary when really it should be more of this kind of um, distribution of probability? Yeah, definitely. So I think it's worth discussing a bit about the the issues that we identified in the market so i mean firstly it, it's it's very opaque at the moment um and well we're, we're trying to change that but um it's sort of historically been quite opaque and that was one of the key reasons that it that it didn't it failed in its first iterations really um and that's just a lack of information quality and availability um and it's also fragmented there's a lots of accreditation bodies like we've discussed hundreds of methodologies and it's also simplistic uh, as you said so it's it's a binary in nature you know you're either accredited or you're not um and actually no market really works like you know not all carbon credits are created equal so um that creates essentially a lack of correlation between price and quality because all the credits seemingly are the same. And so if you're a private company trying to get involved in this and you want to you know, do best practice, both to, to manage your reputational risk and potential future regulatory risk, it's incredibly difficult to know what, what you're doing. You have to probably hire off an agency to try and go in and really look into these projects. So that's kind of the, the first thing to say. Um, and our founders, um, that they came from a financial services background. They worked at Bank of America doing um, sell-side research there. And they really identified that market failure in, in the voluntary carbon market. And they saw that actually, we've got the accreditors, which um, is like the SEC, for instance, um, but we don't have the, the Moody's and the S&P that, that allow you to, to look at these things and be able to differentiate. So that's a key point of it. So bringing in that differentiation allows that allows the buyers to really be able to know what they're buying. And it hopefully over time, if we pull off what we're trying to pull off, we'll start to see that correlation between price and quality uh, in the market. Um, and it's worth probably just discussing a bit about the rating itself. Um, so the, the rating was the sort of brainchild of, of Seb, our co-founder, um, and there are six risk factors that are used to rate all of these carbon credits. So they are additionality, overcrediting, non-permanence, 
leakage, perverse incentives, and political environment. Um, and there's a very heavy weighting towards additionality. Um, additionality, for those that maybe aren't, aren't as familiar with the term, is essentially it, it's that you need carbon finance in order for that that project to be undertaken. So, um, you know, if you if if the if the carbon credits are not actually additional, then they're not causing any uh, additional benefit. So then offsetting it against, well, offsetting your net zero strategy, those offsets are, are yeah, that, that sort of difficulties in that and then being credible. So those are the risk factors that we do. And then the process, we've got, um, you know, sort of 20 strong uh, team of rating scientists. And we've also got Earth observation scientists, about 15 of them that, that look at all of these look at all of these projects um, and there's firstly there's a sort of macro factor assessment you look at the country you then look at the, the sector uh, and you look at the actual methodology and then there's the project specific assessments really sort of digging down into the individual project uh, and then there's the, the sort of risk factor weighting so as I said it's a heavy heavy weight and additionality and then the, the other half is sort of split across different risk factors. Um, and then there's a rating committee review. So uh, we have an internal ratings committee that do continuous monitoring, review and watch processes. It's quite similar in a way to how the, the established ratings agencies in financial services operate. Um, our president is a former, former CEO of, of Moody's Analytics, so sort of very well versed in those processes. Um, so it's very much using that approach. And I think it's that's an important point for me, an important point of why I really wanted to join B0 is that they speak the language of, of um, financial services and can speak to those to the big investors, those big banks. And that is where the money and the capital is. And that's where you, you will need it to really help tackle the climate crisis. So I think that's a really important aspect to it, that you can then speak that language to then funnel that, that capital through. And I think it's um, going to be really important going forward that, that that we can help scale the market. And I genuinely think that if we don't have that differentiation, if we don't have ratings, I think we'll really struggle to scale this market and unleash the potential that it could have. 100%. Just to bring it home, so the rating, there's kind of three rating buckets. There's A, AA, and AAA. Uh, and if, if you want, maybe can you give us an example of different projects that fall into it? You don't necessarily have to call it out because we don't want to shame anyone here or, or stack rank them, but just an idea of what would be an A project, what would be a AA, what would be a AAA? Yeah, so there's there's sort of more more ratings than that. So there's sort of, um, there's, you know, AAA plus, uh, sort of AA minus, there's sort of the inter, inter the ones in between as well. So there's a number of different ratings. Uh, in terms of which projects would fall into which category, it's, uh, it's sort of a fool's errand to, to try and say which one it is, because the, I think the whole point around this is there's so much nuance behind all of these projects. And a lot of the issues are very project specific. There may be earth observation changes in there. So, you know, you can have some very poor quality removal project, for instance, you can have a very high quality avoidance project. Um, like there's the point of the ratings that it cuts across some of the presumptions that there is in the market at the moment. Um, and it is, yeah, it's it's completely dependent on the project. Um, so I'm afraid it's not an easy answer to that. But I think that's, um, that's also an important point to bring into the market because there is, there is quite a lot of, I don't know, there's, especially with the removal space, 
people do tend to think removals is categorically better than avoidance, but um, you know it, it's it's so much more complex than that. And there's there's uh, you know there's plenty of there's plenty of nuance within it where you have avoidance projects which are better than avoidance, so with than removal. So I think it's uh, that's why the qualitative work that our, our rating scientists do is so important to, to bring into the market. Yeah, and you know, that statement is coming from the person who's head of carbon removal, which I think is super important because people it, it, at times, at least from my lens, it feels like there's kind of a hierarchy where like the removal people and even in the space, the removal people are the like the highest level, the, the, the most important tranche of carbon credits and carbon. Uh, but clearly there, there's more nuance to that. Um, I think, you know, kind of ties back to our Twitter conversation earlier, which is that the consumers, the voluntary consumers of this market really just want the 140 characters version, at least from my lens, the people that I work with, the organizations I work with, um, for the most part, want to know what I hear, what I've heard even this, this week or within the past seven days are, we want the highest quality and he- here's our budget. But we also want our budget to match our carbon accounting number of tons. So in this case, we'll call it like 300 tons. And so we don't want to pay $600 a ton, but we want the best. And so um, I know it's hard, or I know it's it's impossible to kind of bucket projects into the different uh, A, AA, AAA, plus, you know, pluses and minuses. But what is the 140 character? You, you're in a room with an organization who is allocating they're, they have a budget for carbon credits um, or carbon offsets, and they have shared with you that they just want the best, most bang for your buck. What is the 140 character version, uh, either of the work you do or, or how, how you tell them to move forward? Yeah, I mean, this probably is going to annoy you, but you go <laughs> on to the BZ. <laughs> so we, we publish all of our ratings publicly online. So that was very important for us. We are fully transparent in the way we do things. And a key part about that is that we publish those ratings. And we are the only one in the market that does that. And we cover over 50% of the voluntary carbon market with our ratings. And they're all on the website. You can go and have a look at them now um, and check out different ratings. Uh, you know, we've got a, a subscriber-only platform that gives the underlying analysis for that. Uh, but in short, I mean, if you go and get the top-rated projects on that on that um, on on our platform, um, you know, some of them may be sold out, but the ones that aren't, you know, get that they will be the highest quality credits that I will know of. There may be some that we haven't rated that are of, you know, even better quality, but actually, that is that is your best bet. Is really use the rating as a steer to get the highest quality credits you can. And is there a price corollary between the different buckets? Um, so, you know, in, in time, I think you will hope to see that develop because then, you know, the mission of trying to create that correlation will have been achieved. But, you know, we've only had the ratings live for less than six months now. So it's still, I think, taking a, a bit of time. But anecdotally from from marketplaces, you know, I'm, I'm already hearing that, that it's starting to shift demand towards the ones that have high ratings. but that is purely anecdotal, so we don't have any data to back that up at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think this is a great way to pivot into kind of the, the future um, and how B0 and how your work is, is moving the world closer to net zero. Because in a way, um, I, th- I think a, a maybe an apt metaphor is that carbon offsets are similar to like walking to a grocery store and having like 600 different kinds of ketchup to choose from, right? When really you just want, you really only want one. You're, and maybe you want, maybe you want three. You want like the organic, the like Heinz, and then the whatever it is, the like, um, the the grocery store brand. That kind of that, like they're basic, the medium, and then the, or the, the basic, the value, and then the high end. 
Uh, and, and you kind of see that within stocks too. Like people now, they just like, give me the S&P 500 ETF, right? Like I don't really care who's in the S&P 500. I just want 500 companies and I want low risk and high returns. And um, so from your lens, you, what does success look like for the carbon markets, for B0? Uh, and then how does that impact a future net zero world? Yeah, I think a key thing about what we do is trying to improve transparency in the market. We have a you know a strict criteria of what you need to do in order to be eligible for a rating. There are many many projects that are not eligible for a rating. Um, maybe worth discussing those. So we want all of the data we use to be publicly available. Um, we need a third party verification of the LCA, uh, and we also need an additionality test incorporated within the methodology. Um, and so because that is the benchmark, um, you know the transparency issue is front and center for that. And so I think if we can really start to, to make it a lot more transparent, I think that will be uh, an important win for us. And I think I'm already seeing that that happening. People are sort of submitting more information into the public domain, which is really great to see. But I think at the core of what we want to do is help scale this market and help really crowd in private capital for this public good, for this mission to, to tackle climate change. And so if you know some of these some of these um, projections say that the market could be 200 billion by by 2050 up from I don't know, a couple of billion now uh, and, and if we can achieve that with ratings sort of steering that growth and so sort of if we can help the confident building confidence in the market to help that growth um, and to, and that, that that when you get to 2050 if ratings are, have been front and center for that what you will see is that because of the laws of supply and demand the capital will be flying into the best projects and so some of the worries about the voluntary carbon market in the past will no longer be in the future if we pull off what we're trying to pull off. Yeah, and maybe even it's not. I think you know it's fair to say there are there are tons of people who invest in distressed debt, right? And so it won't necessarily be that all of the capital is falling into the best projects. Like it will be fair to say that hey, you know these are riskier projects that maybe uh, the the additionality is that is riskier, but there's still there's a group of people who want to invest in that because like that's their price point. Yeah, there may be, you know, there's, it, it's, impo- it's possible to know how it's going to progress. We're still sort of really at the beginning or the beginning of this market to see how it goes. But yeah, I, I think there's, there, there may be buyers for those, but hopefully the demand will be shifted towards towards those those credits that, that are in the higher rating scale. For sure, for sure. And then, I mean, going back to the Twitter example, I think one of the takeaways for for individuals who, who want to get more involved or want to utilize B0 service is that um, while it doesn't distill it down to a binary again, but it, it does distill it down so that you mentioned the life cycle analysis, uh, the LCA and the, um, the third party assessment verification that a user of your services doesn't have to go and look at that himself. They don't have to be familiar. I don't know if it's ISO 1464-3. That's the like the certification. It could be a different one. I'm like blanking offhand. But like no one needs to know about that. You know, I don't know how the internet works. I mean, I know that there's protocols, but I don't really ever care to read them. Similarly, you can synthesize or B0 synthesizes all of that information so an individual can then utilize the service uh, and, and not need to be familiar with the different ISO standards or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you, if you, uh, I think Nathan might, might have done a trial for you for, for, the, for the platform. If I haven't, I should give you a, a view of what it looks like. But if you go on to that, it's incredibly consumer friendly and it allows you to really unpick some of this information that for the first time really is, is actually consumable to, to the human eye. Before it was sort of buried away in PDF somewhere um, and very difficult to get your hands on. So I think that's a really important, important point. 
Um, and something that I, I didn't actually discuss when, in the last question that I think is worth highlighting is we what we've seen in the research we're doing is that, that the market will shift towards removals over time. And a part of that shift is kind of come from the engineered removals. Um, and I think going back to my part of the work within B0, you know, I, we've got a challenge the IPCC has set out that we need to get to 10 gigatons, that's 10 billion tons of carbon removal by annually by 2050, which is an enormous, enormous challenge. And we need to do that if we want to have any hope of sort of staying on below two degrees, really. Um, and so that is just such a monumental task. And that financing is not going to come from the public sector alone. Like you just can't, you can't afford that. Um, and so the, the vessels of the voluntary market, I think, will be really crucial uh, to, to crowd in that capital for those engineered solutions, such as you know, direct air capture, for instance, that we're going to need a hell of a lot of by 2050. And so you know, part of what I'm doing is trying to prepare some of those companies to be able to do, undertake a rating when they start issuing those credits. Uh, and so I think that's a, an important point of our role is to really help that part of the market grow as well as the wider market to, to really help sort of, yeah, the, the fight against climate change. Incredible. Let's uh, let's go and dive into you a little bit, you and your your own personal journey, um, and just like your philosophies and ideas. Uh, starting with, uh, do you have a favorite form of carbon removal? Oh God, it's like I don't have any children, but I imagine it's like <laughs> yeah. which one of your children you love most? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, I I yeah I I don't I don't think I can I can answer that. It wouldn't be fair. Um, no, I I think. You know, we've, there's some really fascinating companies out there. Maybe instead, I'll I'll spotlight a few companies that I've chatted to recently that I think are doing some interesting things. Um, there's one it's actually Steve Steve Oldham, the, the the guy that got me first interested in this stuff, is now running a company called Captura, which is um, sort of using the power of the oceans to to remove carbon. They're doing some very exciting things that potentially they can get the cost per ton down to very low in quite a short period of time. So that's quite exciting. Um, there's also uh, company called planetary that are sort of really leading the space in the ocean alkalinity enhancement as well so that's quite interesting um you can see carbon capture have just announced uh the, the their plans for a five megaton plant the biggest ever direct air capture plant which is um exciting as well so you know there's, there's plenty of really great people doing things in this space and i think what's so great in the carbon removal sector is that you can see everyone working together. There's no one you know, bad-mouthing each other. There's just really people sort of clubbing together, getting trying to crowd in capital and uh, and the brains needed to, to, to help scale the market. And it's, it's really great to see. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a few sort of community groups like Open Air and Air Miners that everyone's sort of on, on these channels together, really, really helping each other out. And I think that's what's, what's great to see in the market. Yeah, 100%. And the, I know part of the podcast goal is providing these resources. So for people who do want to lo- learn more, checking out Open Air, Air Miners, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Um, if you weren't working, at, well, you, you really are, you have two jobs already as it is, but if you weren't doing what you're doing uh, at B0 and as a fellow um, at Onwards, what would you be doing? What would you be spending your time doing? Oh, wow. <laughs> Don't think I've ever thought about that. Um, yeah, that is that's tricky. How talented am I? <laughs> <laughs> Up to you. I mean, you tell me how talented do you feel right now? Uh, God, well, if it's me, it's a different question. But if I could do anything, I mean, it's got to be, yeah, I mean, probably a rock star. Why not? 
Do you play music? Uh, I play very badly, but yeah. if I was very good, then maybe I would. Great, great. You can join my very bad band, which is a party of one right now. So together we can be right. a party of two. Let's do it. It's a shame we live on different continents. Yeah, well, we could, we could do it virtually. So, you know, I got the piano right here. Um, I'm working on Pure Imagination from... Um, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's, it's pretty terrible. Uh, well, the song's great, but my playing of it is horrible. Um, <laughs> are there any specific social media influencers or um, public leaders that you follow uh, to either learn about carbon removal or carbon, carbon markets or sustainability more general that you think people should check out? Yeah, definitely. So in the in the kind of wider climate space, uh, there's actually someone that used to help fund my research onward a guy called Joss Garman who's the he leads the European Climate Foundation in the UK he's got a really great newsletter that if you're interested in UK politics and UK climate policy uh, it's read by sort of everyone everyone here that, that um, is working in this space and he's sort of very on point and uh, has some interesting interesting takes so that's that what's the name of the newsletter uh, that is a good question if you type in Joss, Joss Garman newsletter into Google, I'm sure it comes up. But I can't remember exactly. Joss with two S's. He used to advise Lisa Nandy, who um, is a senior Labour politician uh, on climate issues. So he's very, very looped into that. Um, and the ECF, the European Climate Foundation, are funding sort of all of the, the best research programmes in, in the UK on this debate. So I think they're really worth looking at. Um, in the carbon management and carbon removal space i think i don't know if you know naeem merchant who um he's got a great great newsletter called the carbon curve uh, which is definitely definitely worth signing up to uh he's done some interesting work with carbon plan and a few other people in the space there's also the carbon 180 newsletter um which you know they very much have sort of led the charge on on carbon removal policy in the us um to, to great success really um and then beyond that uh yeah, I don't know. I've, I've subscribed to a newsletter. This isn't really climate, but um, I don't know if you know him. Noah Smith, he's got one called No Opinion, um, and it's often climate related. Uh, he does some really interesting takes. Um, highly recommend, um, yeah, subscribing to him. And then, you know, you've got your, your Carbon Brief, Business Green, you know, those sort of UK climate, climate publications are really worth following. And actually, the think tank that I, I'm a fellow at, but I'm, you know, I'm not full-time, I just do it. Just, uh, just do now and again, but they have a really excellent climate program and they just really interesting polling and lots of interesting work. They did one recently about a big report on how, how you can affect basically how governments can sort of use nudge, nudge tactics to try and nudge people into to doing, you know, climate positive actions, which was really interesting. They did it in partnership with the, the behavioral insights team, which was sort of, is nicknamed the nudge unit that used to be a part of the UK government. So anyway, they do some, some really fascinating work as well. Are you familiar with Dan White or the team at Signal? I'm not. Okay. Sounds like I should be. <laughs> no, I'm necessarily just fine. They were actually the first, Dan White was the first ever um, person on the podcast. He, uh, UK based, um, they created a nudging platform to incentivize pilots of airlines to reduce their fuel consumption. Um, and they come from, I think his name's Rob Mc mcphee mcafee um they came from one of the big universities in england uh focusing wow. on behavioral economics and nudging so uh cool just fun connection for the pod yeah i'll definitely definitely look him up 
you know, similarly, we kind of just touched on it, but you know, looking backwards in time, is there any book or podcast or other form of media that has seriously influenced your shape of thinking around sustainability, net zero, carbon removal? Um, there's one, I'm forgetting the author now, but I'm just going to look up exactly what um, he's called. But this book was really excellent. Um, by uh, It's called Climate Change in the Nation State. Uh, the case for nationalism in a warming world. And it's sort of quite interesting because it's very much, I don't know, it's sort of approaching it in a very different way, this debate. Uh, and it talks about the need to empower nations to, to tackle climate change, which I think is just a, it's a very interesting way of approaching it, really. And it talks a lot about uh, the potential impact of climate migration and what that could mean for the world. Um, that's more from a, a kind of general interest uh, i think i think it's really worth reading uh and then beyond that don't know if you know dieter helm he's a very influential thinker in the uk um he led the cost of energy review and is, is sort of just a yeah an author and writer but he did a book called i think it was just called net zero and it's about sort of two years ago uh, and it sort of set out his idea of, of how how we can get to, to, to 2050 so i think yeah there's some there's some interesting books that that i've read yeah i, I think beyond that i actually very someone who's quite influential in, in my work was a guy called richard howard who um sort of used to run run climate change policy at a think tank in the UK but I ended up being lucky enough to write write a paper with him and that was sort of my first big foray into this space so he was um, very patient at, uh, at sort of taking me through it and sort of making me think about some of these things so um, I probably owe it to him as well. Amazing um, tons of homework for people who want to learn more uh, thank you for providing the resources Ted it has been an absolute pleasure the time flew by uh, last question for you, um, which is if people want to follow your work or want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, Twitter, Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, probably the best. I think I've got my DMs open. So yeah, do, do send me a message. Okay, fantastic. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Um, thank you for coming on. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Nathan. Thanks again to Ted for joining us today. You can connect with him on Twitter at Ted C. Miller, that's Ted, T-E-D-C, as in the letter, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, or LinkedIn, Ted Christie Miller. You can learn more about B0 and their global carbon ratings by visiting their website, B0.com, or following their Twitter at B0Carbon, B-E-0-Z-E-R-O, Carbon, C-A-R-B-O-N. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt. The original music composed by Mish Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at the Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Sfee, and this is The Net Zero Life.